Hey, what's up guys, Travis here. And if you've been following me or my story for any length of time, you know that I started a company called Guestio about a year and a half ago now. And one of the things that we are doing this year in 2022 is we're building a concierge program called the Fast Pass that allows you to get booked on top quality shows and platforms for the purpose of spreading awareness for your brand, grabbing attention, uh, growing your credibility, your authority, et cetera, et cetera. And so if you are listening to this right now and you are a seven figure plus entrepreneur and you have a budget to bring in traffic, attention, credibility, authority to your brand, then this might be a really great program for you. Just head over to travischapel.com slash 10K. Why 10K? Because we guarantee in this program that you're going to be able to speak in front of 10,000 people within 90 days. Okay, 10,000 people within 90 days. Imagine getting on a stage in front of 10,000 people to share your message, your story. That's exactly what we are doing inside of this program through virtual stages like podcasts or virtual events or YouTube channels or blogs. You name it, we are working with it, and we are trying to get you booked on those platforms. So travischapel.com slash 10x. There's a quick application there, and then right at the end of that application, it'll prompt you to set up a phone call where you'll jump on a call with me, and we'll talk through whether or not you're a great fit for this program. Please act fast on this. Do not wait because we are only taking on one or two clients a week due to uh, constraints with our team and the limited supply of high quality shows and platforms that are out there in the market. So if that's you and you're really wanting to explode your brand in 2022, head over to travischapel.com slash 10K, fill out the application, schedule a quick phone call, and you and I will chat really soon about whether or not this would be a great fit for you. Thanks, guys. Talk to you soon. Hey, everybody, this is Monty Moran, author of Love is Free, Guac is Extra. And if you want to level up your relationships, you should be listening to the Build Your Network podcast with my good friend, Travis Chappell. If you're tired of the old way of networking, the business cards, the awkward conversations, and the aggressive pitches, but you know how crucial your network is to your success in life, then you're in the right place. Welcome to Build Your Network, the only top-rated show committed to helping you master content networking, foster real relationships, increase your authority, and build the network of your dreams. Listen in on conversations with world-class entrepreneurs, authors, thought leaders, and more as we deconstruct their best strategies for your success. So get ready to burn your business cards, ditch the name tag, and discover the new way to network with your host, Travis Chappell. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Build Your Network. Today, I have the distinct privilege of sitting down with Monty Moran. Monty is the former co-CEO of Chipotle Mexican Grill. Maybe you've heard of it. Um, during his time with Chipotle, the company grew from eight restaurants to over 2,000 globally, from a few hundred employees to over 70,000, and from a market value of several million to over 23 billion dollars. Prior to joining Chipotle, he was the head of litigation and then managing partner and CEO at the Denver-based law firm of Messner and Reeves, which he led for 10 years. Most recently, Monty realized his lifelong dream of becoming a pilot and flies his airplane throughout the United States to pursue his interest in better understanding and serving Americans, a quest he documents through his startup, Old Tail Productions. He's a director and chairman of corporate boards and an advisor to many entrepreneurs and businesses. And today he is a guest on the Build Your Network podcast. So this is gonna be an awesome conversation. You're not going to wanna miss out on it. But first, really quickly, if you are a podcaster or you like to be a guest on podcasts, then head over to guestio.com. That's guestio.com 
and uh, create a free account over there. It's a software that my team and I just put together that basically connects you to the other person. So if you're a podcaster, it'll connect you to the guests. If you're a guest, it'll connect you to the podcaster. So kind of an online marketplace of sorts that connects uh, high-level people with other high-level people. And so you can find that over at guestio.com, create a totally free account and browse through all the amazing people that we have on the site. Mani, thanks so much for taking the time to join me today. This is a, this is a really, really awesome interview opportunity. So I appreciate it. Yeah, no, it's great to be here with you, Travis. So let's dive deep here and build a little bit of context. That's what I always love to do before we jump into some tactical, practical things about relationship building. Let's go back in the day. Talk to me about, you know, 12-year-old, 13-year-old Monty. Set the scene for us. Talk to me about, you know, where you grew up, what your family life was like, stuff like that. Yeah. So I grew up in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, I had one brother, but otherwise just the two of us. And um, so small family and grew up in the mountains outside of Boulder. My dad was an interesting guy. He was a cell biologist and a falconer. So he flew birds of prey, you know, uh, goshawks, uh, peregrine falcons, red-tailed hawks, uh, sharp, I mean, um, you know, uh, Cooper's hawks, all sorts of different kinds of hawks. And um, so we grew up with a real penchant for the outdoors. We were outside all the time. Uh, a lot of cross-country skiing, hiking, you know, that kind of yeah. thing, F fishing, all that. Anyway, my mom was a, was, um, a psychotherapist and a really a great artist. And so she was always painting and doing pottery. And so she was super interesting too. So it was kind of a neat, neat deal. Um, when I was a young kid, I, uh, I was super, super curious. Um, I think maybe that's one of the most defining characteristics that I had that set me maybe apart from a lot of people. So I asked a lot of questions and, you know, I asked tons of questions of my mom and dad and probably enough of my dad that I drove him a little bit crazy. And so, in fact, in fact, I could tell that I drove him crazy, which kind of hurt my feelings. And so I had to come up with, I had to really skillfully come up with ways of asking him questions where he'd be glad to respond. And my dad, even though he was super, super, super bright, he didn't like to be like cross-examined like a lawyer. And I kind of had the tendency to cross-examine. Yeah, but what about this? Yeah, but what about that? Yeah, but what, you know. And, but I, so I had to learn to sort of approach him in a way that was sort of softer and with more respect, kind of like you'd approach a guru or something like that. And when I did that just right, he'd give me lots of information. So I got sort of good at reading people and reading through my dad, like reading when he was in the mood or when he wasn't in the mood or how to get him in the mood to answer all my many questions. So that, that I think that had a uh, significant you know, sort of resonance down the line with me as I got into my career. And then, and then I jumped into a lot of little jobs in my book. I, in my book, Guac is Extra, you know, Love is Free, Guac is Extra, I talk about, you know, my, my minimum wage MBA, I like to call it, you know, so I had, I was a janitor, I was a car parts salesman, I was a car mechanic, I was a, I, I worked at Dairy Queen and uh, I was were, a waiter. Were all, those, were all those during high school or is this like after? So before high school, I did some assembly for, pl made pliers. And then during high school, I worked at Dairy Queen. And then after high school, I became a janitor right after that when I first went to college, and then a car part salesman, then a mechanic. And uh, so I, and then, a, and then a waiter, being a waiter, by the way, one of the best jobs ever, I think, in terms of learning how to multitask and interact and network with people, really. I mean, you got to meet tons of people quickly and size them up and see what they want by way of service. Great job. So I learned so, so, so much through these, these small, what most people would call dead-end jobs. I don't believe in that term, by the way. I think that's a terrible term. I think there's no such thing as a dead end job. And the only thing that makes it dead end is if you think it's dead end yeah, and then you got, right. the, then you're, you're bringing the wrong attitude to it. So that's a problem. But anyway, you know, and at Dairy Queen, my curiosity led me to do something that I don't think anyone else there had ever done or probably would ever do, which was we had a mental health, a couple of mental, mental health facilities next door to our Dairy Queen. And the people would come in, they were homeless oftentimes, and they would sit down with a cup of coffee for three, four hours, order nothing else, put creamer in it, sugar in it. 
And I just wondered about them and well, how they came to be there. And so I started sitting down with them during my breaks and I'd bring a hamburger or a French fry, maybe an extra hamburger for them. And I'd be like, hey, you know, may I, may I join you? And they'd be like, yeah, sure. You know, and they'd be surprised. And I'd sit down with them and I'd end up talking with them. And what I found was they were incredibly brilliant, interesting people who had an unbelievably different background than my own. I was a kid you know, that knew where my next meal was coming from, coming from. I felt safe. I had good parents. And, uh, but a lot of these folks found themselves in a hard way without a home, without a job, often without loved ones or friends to take care of them. And uh, so I just started talking to them and, and I noticed a bunch of things from that, Travis. And maybe the most important one was something just, just by sitting down with them and being curious about them and wanting to know about them. Just, just from that, I noticed that their demeanor brightened. You know, they were lit up. They felt, and, and, you know, and from that, I learned something that I think is critically important to anyone in their lifetime. And that is that everyone in the world wants the same thing, which is to be seen, valued, loved, and understood. That's what everyone wants. You know, we're all going about it different ways. You know, some people want to get really rich and get yachts and get cars and get mansions, and they feel like that will help them be seen, valued, loved, and understood. It doesn't really. It's cool. I mean, there's neat things you can do with that. I'm not poo-pooing materialism. There's something fun about it. But, uh, but, you know, people go about it in all sorts of different ways. Some people go live in an ashram and meditate, you know what I mean? But they still want to be seen, valued, loved, and understood. Uh, and they just define it differently how they think that will come about. But, you know, so interviewing those many people in my uh, local Dairy Queen, where I worked for a couple of years at 15 years old, I just learned, you know, and I learned how to get to know someone. And, and the best way to get to know someone is to bring just your presence, like to actually be there, look them in the eye, and uh, which is hard with you because I'm looking at you in the eye on the screen, but that makes them not looking in the camera. It's kind of funny. Anyway, so look them in the eye and, and actually be curious about them and want to know about them and what drives them and what motivates them and what's their life like and what's it. But, and what I've found, Travis, is that everybody has not just a story, that's obvious, but everyone's got a story that's super worth learning you know, and everyone has admirable qualities that are super worth emulating. Everybody, you know, and, and uh, you know, it may not be obvious right away, but people usually have something that's very, very strong and interesting about them. And so I have this habit that whenever I meet anyone new, within a minute, I'm usually admiring something in them and wishing I had that characteristic, you know, like, you know, some people, it might be, you know, they got a really deep, clear voice. I'm like, that's a nice voice, man. I like that voice, you know, or they have a way of looking at you that, that, you know, is, is very respectful. I'm like, God, I really like the way that person looks at me. Or maybe it's that they, that they have an interesting background that they start talking about, but almost always I admire something about everyone who I meet. And I think that habit, which probably was, you know, stemmed a little bit from my Dairy Queen days, uh, I think really helps me to get to know a lot of people very, very quickly and very effectively. Because uh, when I meet someone, I'm really curious. And what's beautiful about curiosity is when you're curious about someone, what does it mean? Well, it means you want to see them. You want to know them. You know, you want to value them. You want to understand them, which is what everyone in the world wants. You know, so it really draws people towards you. You know, so my curiosity tended to bring people towards me. And then they would end up being curious about me. And likewise, then I would feel seen, valued, loved, and understood and want to pour myself out and maybe tell them about me. And we'd end up having these incredibly deep conversations. So one thing that's been the hallmark of my whole upbringing and my whole life is that I tend to very quickly have very trusting, very deep, very interesting relationships with just about everyone I meet. And that's been a blessing because there's so much to learn from so many folks. Yeah. I mean, I didn't intend for us to go down this networking path this soon, but man, it's just woven into your story. And, and if you've been paying attention at all, if you weren't paying attention, 
make sure to rewind and go back and re-listen to everything that Monty just said, because this is a masterclass in networking without even really even talking about it specifically. Because uh, if you can just do that one thing, if you can get curious, like a genuine curiosity about other people, that one thing will take your, your networking, your relationship building, whatever you want to call it, whatever term or, or phraseology you want to use, it'll take it to the next level. Yeah. Because that's at its base what building relationships is. It's just yeah. getting to know somebody else and getting to understand the lens through which they view the world. And yeah. if you can put on those lenses for just a second, then you can potentially connect with that person on a, on a much deeper level. Yeah, and you know, I think uh, another thing that was a hallmark of my childhood is, you know, I grew up in Boulder, Colorado, and at that time, and still, but really at that time, Boulder was a very, very, I think, spiritually curious community. There was a lot of people from all over the world coming here to study Christianity and Buddhism and Zen and, um, you know, all it was, it was this groovy, we used to call them granolas, these people, you know, who walked around, you know, chomping on granola and, and wanting to learn about spirituality. But, you know, it was kind of funny we called them that, but to be honest, my mom and dad kind of were granolas in some ways, although you wouldn't have seen, thought that just by looking at them, but they were very, very spiritually curious. And so I grew up really spiritually curious. And, you know, over the years, what I came to realize is that my curiosity stemmed from this deep, deep desire that I have to understand the truth, like really the truth, the truth about people, the truth about the world. The truth. And I also developed somewhere along the way, a nose for anything that I thought was not genuine, you know? So if something's not authentic, if it's propped up or not real, I tend to sniff it out right away. And then I wonder, why is this person I'm talking to not feeling like they can be real with me? And so usually right away, I'll say something like, hey, what's up? You know, and uh, not in an offensive way, but again, in a curious way, you know, yeah, hey, right. it, seems like, it seems like you're not really wanting to share with me. Is it, is it, do, you, do you not want to talk about this? You know? And so I developed this very, very blunt style of trying to get right to the point and trying to really understand what made someone tick. And I also developed a, an inability to tolerate anything but what I thought was totally genuine and totally real. And, you know, I talk, that's why the book talks about how vulnerability, empowerment, and curiosity built an unstoppable team. In my book, that's the subtitle. You know, and it's like, you know, what I found in when I joined my law firm and was building the culture there, or when I joined Chipotle and was building the culture there, is that my desire to really understand the truth was something that actually invited a deep level of intimacy with everyone that I bumped into, you know, because, and let me just give you a really simple example from day to day life that, that everyone can maybe relate to. And that is when we're walking down the street, let's say you're in New York city and you're walking down the street and, and you bump into someone or you, or you pause in front of an elevator, you go, Hey, how are you doing? And they go, Oh, good. Thanks. How are you? Right. I mean, that's what they're going to say. That's all they're going to say, you know, and it's very rare. They're going to say, well, you know, I'm not great. You know, uh, my, my dog died yesterday and I lost my notes from uh, this speech I had to do, you know, so they're not going to say that. They're just going to say, good, how are you? But what I learned, another thing I learned, I think that really helped me in my leadership roles was to not listen so well to the words that people say, to mm -hmm. not listen to the words because words are unreliable and dishonest as often as, or very often. But the nonverbal cues that accompany words are very, very are usually very reliable. You know, yeah. so for instance, if, and, and if I know you, Travis, and I walk by you in, in an office, but I know who you are and I go, Hey, Travis, how are you doing? And you go, pretty good. How are you doing? I might go, I might stop. What if I stop you? And I go, Travis, you know, you said pretty good, but you don't sound very good. Are you okay? Now, what have I done right there? Now I've demonstrated to you that I'm not going to let even your words prevent me from caring about where you're really at mm. from caring about what you're really feeling. So, so even though it might sound a little rude, like, Oh, you said good, but Travis, you don't sound that good, man. Do you want to talk? You want to hang out a minute? You want to get lunch or something? 
Now, what have I done? You know, I've extended this sort of olive branch of, I've, I've extended curiosity, but I've extended vulnerability. I've extended it is to you a desire to know you. And right away, you're going to feel seen in a way that you weren't feeling seen when you gave me the kind of tepid answer of, yeah, I'm all right, you know? And so you're going to be like, oh, and even if you don't want to talk to me, okay, even if you don't have time right then, you're in the middle of something, you don't want to get deep, you're still going to go, huh, you're going to be like, you know, maybe I'll talk to you later, but thanks, man, but no, I'm all right, I'm all right, all right. And then you're going to walk away, but then maybe later that day, you're going to, you're going to be think, God damn, that was the only guy today who noticed that I was kind of, you know, not feeling that good. Yeah. That's kind of cool. I trust that person. So you start developing a trust for that person who notices how you're really doing. What do all the people who love you in your life really do differently? Well, they notice, you know, they notice, yeah, Travis, you don't seem like yourself today, man. What can I, you know, can I help you? Yeah. You know, can I help you get some of the stuff off your plate? You seem really busy. You know, can I help you? Yeah. You know, do you want to go get a beer? Let's just talk it through. And when somebody, when you see people reaching out to you in a caring way that, that where they actually want to get to know you and actually want to reconnect in a genuine way with you, it's incredibly empowering and affirming to you, you know, and, uh, and that creates real relationships. So a lot of what I've done in my life, and I, and I realized a lot of this after the fact, looking back and going, why, why do I have so many great relationships? And it's because I tend to shatter any illusions that aren't real pretty quickly. I tend to go, ah, you don't sound very good, dude. <laughs> you know, but I don't say it in a way that offends you. Cause you're like, Oh, you know, I, I'm all right. I think I just said that cause I was busy reading the paper. I wasn't really listening to you. Oh, okay, cool. I see you in a bit, you know? So it doesn't have to be some grand psychiatric examination every time. That's not the point. But the point is that there has to be some genuineness in the way you conduct yourself, you know? So, so that's, uh, I think a huge part of my childhood that helped me really form my whole life as a leader and, and, and a business person and, and as a friend and as a father and as a, you know, and as a husband and all that stuff. Yeah. And you've clearly done a really good job of continuing to make sure that that's on the top of your priority list. And to me, what it does is you're not taking the out in relationships, you know, because people give you the opportunity to take the out, you know, like if you're, yeah. you're feigning interest in somebody, as soon as you ask the, how are you doing question? And they say, good, they just gave you an out because they exactly give you the response that everybody gives you. So you yep. by not taking that out and then just saying, okay, good. I'll see you later. Yeah. And leaving to the next conversation by not taking that out and driving a little bit deeper than most people are willing to go, then you're able to really make a little bit of a difference there uh, with that person and build the foundation of what can be a really fruitful relationship. So I really, really appreciate you bringing that insight to the table. This episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. We are driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all. It's to match and match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need this platform, guys. I'm telling you, Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging candidates so you can connect with those people even faster. And it doesn't just help you hire faster. In fact, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And look, guys, one of the things that I wish I would have used Indeed for is this matching service. You can search and search and search and search and search all day long, but to actually be presented with quality candidates, like 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 hiring a, a recruiter for you that's presenting people that has actually done the work to vet them and uh, bring quality people in front of you, that work by itself is, uh, the fact that it's done by a software instead of like a team of high quality recruiters 
is is pretty insane. So they leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day, which is why Indeed's matching engine is the best one that you can use. It's constantly learning from your own preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets at doing the job for you. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility over at indeed.com slash Travis. Just go to indeed.com slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Um, I want to go a little bit back into your story now. Talk to me about college years and then post-college years. How, how, what was the transition look like and what was the timeline before you started working with the law firm? Yeah, so I um, went to Boulder High School in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, then I uh, applied. I, the only college I applied to was uh, University of Colorado Boulder. I wanted to go to CU, you know. So um, I got into CU, went there, and initially studied molecular biology. I wanted to be a neurosurgeon. I did that for a couple, you know, two, two and a half years. And then I decided after having worked in the summers in a laboratory, I decided, you know, I don't really want to work. I don't think I should work on people like, you know, on their brains and stuff with a scalpel. I mean, that'd be cool. And I was still interested in biology and in science, but I decided that I'd rather work with people that I really enjoyed, you know, talking to them and, and, you know, as opposed to being in a laboratory. So I decided to switch my major to speech communication. And so my last year and a half of college, I kind of hustled to get all the credits necessary. And I graduated with a major in speech communication. And then, then after that, I went off to California, uh, moved to LA where a friend of mine had moved and, and, uh, cause I wanted to go out and learn to surf and, you know, kind of hang out with those guys and get a change of scenery. So I went and lived in LA and, uh, pretty quickly got a job there as an insurance adjuster. And in that job, you know, I, I learned tons of incredible lessons, just tons. And I document a lot of those uh, in my book. But, um, and then from there, I started, I met some lawyers who I needed to get involved to help me with some of, um, some of the cases that I was working on as an insurance adjuster. And I saw what they did and I thought, you know, that's cool. I could do that. I could do that. And so I thought I'm going to go to law school, you know? So I ended up going to law school and I went to Pepperdine University in, in Malibu, California, right next to a great surf break and the beautiful view of the ocean. But it was also a very intense, very good school. And I had great professors and I learned a ton. It was, law school was hard, you know, it was hard, hard work. It wasn't as fun and jovial and, and social as college, but I still had a chance to, you know, I went surfing and I met great people and made good relationships and, and got to hang out with a number of friends of mine who actually weren't in law school, but who came out to LA after I moved there from, from Colorado and other places. So anyway, went to law school for, for that, for that three years and, and started working uh, in the summer as a law clerk and, and got a job as a lawyer after that. And I wanted to be a trial lawyer. So then I became a trial lawyer and went to um, a, a big downtown Los Angeles law firm where I was asked to work on these. And I had good grades in law school. So when I was hired at this law firm, I was given this very prestigious cases to work on. Big, big cases for you know, you know, tens of and hundreds of millions of dollars at stake. And really to make the long, a long story short, while those cases sounded interesting, they weren't interesting to work on because I was such a junior lawyer. I was just doing little kind of little bullshit pieces of it. And I was never going to get to actually try the case. Never. I mean, the senior partner was going to try it and the junior partner was going to carry his briefcase. And I was going to carry the senior associate's briefcase who carried the, you know, so I was never going to be able to do, to do anything really interesting. So I said, Hey, do you guys have any smaller cases that I can work on and do all myself? And they're like, yeah, but you don't want them. I'm like, I want them. And they're like, yeah, but they're kind of junk work. They're like insurance fraud work where there's, you know, where there's auto accidents and personal injuries where people are lying and faking injuries. And I said, I'll take them. I'll take them. I want that work. You know? So I got all this so-called junk work and you already 
heard me say what I think about the, you know, the word, you know, words like, you know, uh, dead end jobs. I don't believe in that stuff. Well, I don't believe in crap work on cases either, because what these cases did for me is I, right away, I had 60 open files. I was taking depositions every single day, an average of two or three a day. I was going to court every day, you know, for court appearances to argue motions and, and, uh, and to have trials and mediations and binding arbitrations. So I got just a ton of experience uh, really, really quickly. And in these depositions, keep in mind, I was taking depositions of people who were, generally speaking, lying to me, okay? They were feigning injuries. And I had to look through tens of hundreds of thousands of pages of medical records. And I would look in their medical records and then find dis discrepancies between what they were telling me in their medical records. And then I found a way to really bond with these people. And I don't mean a, I don't mean a false bond. I don't, mean, I don't mean trickery, but I mean, I, and I described this very carefully in the book, but I, I found a way to really, you know, connect with these people. And my goal was to have a better rapport with them than their own lawyer had with them. Well, their own lawyer was a shyster trying to make some dough as quick as he could by getting an insurance uh, there by getting a settlement from my clients. So their lawyers weren't like, they weren't good people generally, to be honest, they just weren't, they were, I mean, I don't, I don't believe in good people and bad people, but let me just say that there were people making bad decisions who weren't in an enviable position. So I tried to get a really deep bond with these people as I'm talking to them. And as I took these depositions for hours and hours and hours and asked every question under the sun, I would see them getting exhausted from lying, exhausted from holding up this story that didn't sound like it made sense. And I would keep asking questions to demonstrate where it made less and less and less sense. And a lot of times right there in that deposition, I was able to get the people to go, they'd be like, and I'd be like, I see that you're sighing. Are you getting really tired of this? And they'd be like, yeah, man, it's been going on for hours. Like how much longer? I'd say it, it gets tiring holding together all these details, doesn't it? And they'd be like, yeah, man, you know, I guess, yeah, it does. And I'd say, you know, I'll tell you what, if you want to make all this stuff go away, you know, it's easy to do that. All you got to do is, is dismiss your case. And if you dismiss it today, then we can stop this stuff. I won't file any uh, requests for sanctions against you. I won't uh, file any counterclaims against you for, you know, for bringing a, 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 an improper lawsuit. So why don't you have a talk with your lawyer? And their lawyer is going, objection, objection. Oh, you can't talk to my client about this. I'm like, hey, I'm just, it's a deposition. I'm going to give you guys a few minutes, you know? Let me take a break. So I take a break, you know, go to the bathroom, wash my hands, sit in my office for five minutes and come back in. And I'll tell you, more often than you'd imagine, you know, either, I, either I'd settle the case right there or I'd know it wasn't going to last much longer, you know? And so, and that was a real, you know, education. And again, in, in forming a bond with someone who's, whose actual goal was to not form a bond with me. It was to find truth with someone whose goal was to not give me the truth. You know, so it was like this incredible challenge of breaking through, forming a bond, forming a bond of trust where they actually believed that I could help set them free. Now, granted, I wasn't going to help them get a bunch of money. I was going to, they weren't going to get any money, but I was going to help set them free from what was ending up being a big pain in the neck this lawsuit. And so I learned so much from those depositions and I took thousands of them. And so, and I got to really know when someone was lying or, to, or you know, telling the truth or, or when they were fibbing, you know, and that, and, and I love playing poker now and I've got a real good ability to read people's hands. So I've trained myself throughout my life and inadvertently, because I didn't know that that's what I was doing at the time. But looking back, I've trained through my, for my whole life to identify, you know, when what someone is saying with their words does not match what their body language is saying, what their tonality is saying, what their cadence of speech is saying, you know, what their posture is saying, 
what their enthusiasm or lack of enthusiasm is saying. You know, so I've gotten really good at finding discrepancies. And now those aren't just useful when you're trying to prove someone wrong in a deposition or in a court or in a trial. That's not the only time they're useful. They're useful every single time you see someone for whom there's a discrepancy there. Because when there's a discrepancy there, uh, you can see that someone is for some reason not being or feeling at liberty to be totally clear and honest or authentic. Maybe they're nervous. Maybe they think you're a big shot and you're going to judge them. Maybe, but it's an opportunity. It's an invitation for you, the, the person who's trying to get to know someone, to realize, huh, this person's uncomfortable for some reason. And it can lead you to say something as, you know, basic as, hey, you know, you seem kind of uncomfortable and am I making you nervous? Because I don't want to make you nervous. And that was very important when I was the CEO of the law firm or the CEO of Chipotle, people had a tendency sometimes to be nervous. You know, the CEOs in the restaurant, oh my God, you know, I got to go to the bathroom and make sure my hair is right and brush my teeth, you know, whatever, that kind of thing. So, but, but you know, when I got to know people, I, I very quickly put them at ease. I'd be like, oh, you know, I'm just here to talk to you. You know, no, no agenda. I just want to say, hi, how are you doing? And they'd be like, oh, well, um, good. How are you doing? I'd be like, hey, I'm pretty good. And usually I'd tell them something, I'm pretty good. I'm a little tired because last night, God, we didn't get in until midnight. And, and I got to get up really early this morning. So I'm, I'm a little groggy. So if I seem groggy, it's because I'm groggy. But I'm super excited to meet with you and talk with you. So what's it like working here? You know, tell me about it. And then, boom, all of a sudden, I'm just a guy. They're just a guy or gal or woman or whatever you call it. They're a person. I'm a person. There's no more titles. There's no more concerns about trying to please anyone. It's just an interaction. And through those interactions, I learned so, so much about every aspect of the restaurant business, about every aspect of how their leadership was treating them, how the, what they were doing that was effective in the restaurants, what they liked about their jobs and didn't like about their jobs. And from all of that, I established a very clear system of priorities as to what we needed to do as a company to make for an awesome workforce. And it was very, very powerful. So it seems like you have done a lot of work, whether on purpose or on accident, in learning how to understand, communicate with, and read people. And it seems like it's been a pretty high-paying skill set for you. And I'm curious to hear now kind of transition uh, back in your story from law firm now into Chipotle because they don't seem to. Yeah, yeah, up, yeah. Right? Well, but I mean, it's just does it, does it on a resume. It doesn't make. Yeah, much sense, yeah, sure. That's, I, no, it's a great work. point. Everyone asks that question. So, as a lawyer, um, you know what I wanted to do was really take care of clients and make and and find a way to make sure that they were better off after having met me and done business with me than they were before they met me. Now, that's not that easy as a lawyer, okay? Because lawyers charge a lot of money, and uh, you know. And, and it's an expensive process and it's a difficult process to go through a lawsuit, for instance, e either as a plaintiff or a defendant. And so, yeah, and so it, was yeah. a big, it was a very audacious goal, you know, but I worked very, very hard to make sure that, that people were really pleased with my service, that I took care of them, that I was honest with them, that I gave them all the options that, and that I gave them hopefully a very excellent outcome. If they chose to go to trial, we'd win the trial, you know, because I was like ruthlessly overprepared usually. And I didn't think I was, I thought I was very underprepared, but looking back, no, I was overprepared. Uh, you know, I, I'd stay up all night working. I didn't even bill all my time. because so I was like, look, I'm going to be perfect in this trial. And I'm not even going to build a client all my time because they, they probably don't want me working this hard, but I'm going to work this hard anyway. So I took it very, 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 very seriously. Well, that, that got noticed. And I started getting a lot, a lot, a lot of work, a lot of clients. And so I got busier and busier and busier until I was coming in at, you know, three or four in the morning in order to still be home by 630 for supper to see my kids, you know, because I had little kids and I didn't want to get home after they were in bed every night. So I, I was yeah, working right. extremely hard, but I was loving it. But at that time, you know, I had a, I had a, a you know, sort of a brand new client called Chipotle uh, because my, uh, this guy I knew named Steve Ellis, who had become a friend, had founded Chipotle and he needed some help doing real estate leases. So he said, hey, will you, will you help doing these real, do these real estate leases? And I said, sure. And I quoted, quoted him a flat fee of $1,200, which ended up being like, seriously, like 
10 or 15 bucks an hour. It was nothing because they ended up taking 100 bucks, 100 hours to get them done uh, through all the negotiations and all that stuff. They took months at times. Um, but anyway, so, but it, it got me into Chipotle and I started getting to know a lot of the people there. And it was really, really fun. And I loved the company and I loved what it stood for. And I loved what Steve was trying to build, you know, but again, during this time, I was getting busier and busier and busier. And Steve noticed uh, when he came in to visit me in my law firm, he'd say, God, this law firm, man, it feels great in here. Like you've got these, all these associates who are super hardworking. They're bright eyed. They seem super, super smart. They're really into what they're doing. They seem to like each other. Like this culture here, I love it. Like, how did you build this culture? You know, and I said, well, I don't know. You know, I don't know. You know, we're just working hard. And he goes, no, 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 no. You do know. Like, I want to know how you built this culture. And I said, okay, cool. Well, then uh, I'll tell you. And so I told him. And the story went a little something like this, you know, I get too busy, right? Too, 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 too busy. But I still want to say yes and still want to take more and more and more work. I don't want to say no to new clients because building clients is how you build a law firm, right? You don't want to say no to someone you really want to interview, even though you've got interviews lined up all day, every day, but you want to find a way to interview, you, you know, someone awesome comes along and you want to get to know, you're going to find time. Well, that's what I did, right? But as I got busier and busier, I learned eventually, God, something's got to give. I can't do any more work myself. So I'm going to have to give work to associates and train those associates to do the work well. So I started doing that. But when clients got the bills, you know, and saw that these junior associates had worked on their cases, they, some of them got kind of pissed off. They'd be like, hey, Monty, you know, am I not important to you anymore? Are you pawning me off on younger associates? Like, why aren't you doing my work? And when they said that, Travis, this is a trick question. So think about it. How, did I, how do you think I felt? Uh, probably not good. <laughs> I felt great because they said they wanted me to do all the work. And that meant that they thought I was good and they liked me. Okay. Now, gotcha. now that's a very gotcha. egoic, right? That's my ego talking, right? Sure. It's just like if right. I said, Travis, I don't want to ever be on another podcast because you do the best. You ask the best questions. I want only viewer, and you're going to feel like, oh, that's kind of cool. I mean, I'm glad he likes my podcast. You know what I mean? Um, but, but at the same time, I knew that it was going to limit me greatly in how much work I could do and how much I could build the law firm and how many new clients I could accept and how much I could grow into new areas of the law and how much I could lead the firm. Cause by then I'd become the chief executive officer of the law firm. And so I had to lead the firm and I had to hire new associates and I had to do the administration and I had to hire the assistants and, and make sure the place was running really well in addition to doing legal work. So it got very busy. So what I had to realize is I just say, God, you know what? That's my ego getting in the way. It's my ego that wants to hear that. But I've got to turn that around to where I, re and, I, and, I, what I and I'll cut a long story short here because I tend to talk off a lot. But what I realized is that it's much more valuable to be someone who makes others better than it is to be the good one. Okay. So instead of just being very good at doing legal work, for, for example, it was way more powerful to bring in young associates who were hungry, give them a vision, help empower them, teach them how to how to practice law, teach them how to take depositions and how to do trials and how to do opening and closing statements and so forth and really get them prepared so that they were excellent. And by doing that, eventually I had this culture of all these people who were awesome. And there was, there was another piece to it though. In order to make sure that they really, really cared about the clients they served, I would give them direct client contact. I would, I would introduce them. Hey, client, I'd like you to meet Travis, this young associate. This is Travis, Travis, client. Hey, I really want you guys to work directly together. You know, client, you're going to love Travis. He's great. I've worked with him a lot. You know, um, he's, he's been here a year now, but he does a great job on this. And I'm going to be here too. So I'm always here if anyone needs me, but you guys work together. Well, what that did is it empowered you, Travis, because you're like, wow, I'm working directly with the client. Now, this might not seem like a big deal, but in most law firms, partners avoid this like the plague. They do not want young associates contacting the client. Why? 
because they feel like if a young associate gets a, a relationship with the client, the young associate can take the client, leave the law firm and start their own practice. And also they feel like the client will call that associate and that they're going to lose credit, you know, lose credit for being, having brought in that work and bringing work into a law firm or being a rainmaker is a big deal. That's how you get valued as a partner. So most lawyers never did that. And so it presented me with this problem that I'm giving all these young associates, all this power, all this control, all this empowerment. So now they can leave the firm if they want and go start their own firms and maybe make more money. So how did I avoid that? Well, I had to build an awesome culture that made them not want to leave. I had to be a place where we helped uh, teach them more and more. How we, we helped give them great autonomy. We gave them some money to use for client development. We gave them and just made it the best place possible for their growth and continued development as a lawyer and as a person. And so we built this great culture and people didn't want to leave, you know, and uh, they wanted to stay. And so that's kind of a, a short version of the story about how I created this culture at the law firm. Well, that's the culture Steve noticed. And he said, I want you to come build that culture at Chipotle. Would you do that? You know, and I kind of said no for four and a half years, um, some version of no, because I was just loving what I was doing. And I kept saying, I'm a lawyer, you know, what do I know about food? Yeah, and finally, yeah. he, but finally he said, a lawyer is what you're doing, but that's not who you are. What you are is a leader. And I want you to right. come to Chipotle. And if you come to Chipotle, he said, you're going to be able to work with a lot more people and impact a lot more people's lives. And I thought, whoa, maybe that's true. You know, maybe by going over to Chipotle, I could have more influence and be able to really bring a positive impact to more people's lives. And that would be cool. So that really, I got to thinking about that. And finally, you know, long story short, I said, okay, you know, I'll come in and be, I'll come in and run the company, you know? And, and so I went over to Chipotle and right away I hit the ground running and trying to build that same quality of culture that we had at the law firm that Steve yeah. had admired so much. And that's what we did. So that was 2008? 2005 is when I joined Chipotle as officially as an employee, although I was very involved before then. That's when I joined as an actual W-2 employee as president of the company. Okay, got it. Cool. So I think my biggest takeaway here so far is learn the people business because the people business is the business that all of us are in no matter what business we're in. And yes. exactly what, um, what he saw in you was basically like, look, I know you don't know anything about food. I'm not asking you to make the burritos. I'm asking you to be a leader of people, which is something that you were able to do extremely well. Yeah. And uh, I, I think, I think that, man, there's so much to unpack here. So I, I feel so strongly that the beginning part of the story is the foundational piece that built everything else that we're talking about right now. Every, like every single part of your career stems back to you sitting down as a 15 year old with a random customer and a dairy queen and having a conversation with them. That's exactly right. Actually, You know, yeah. it's, it's, it's remarkable to see how far a skill set like that can get you because so many people aren't willing to put the reps in like you're willing to put the reps in the thousands of depositions that you did when other people weren't willing to do them. That's yeah. The work, that's the slight edge that you were able to grab over everybody else, which then enabled you to be able to step into a role in a growing company and fulfill that particular piece of, of that company of that company moving forward. So, yeah, um, I, I mean, I'd love to continue talking with you about, you know, Chipotle and everything that came from that, but we're running, running out, of, out of time here. So I want to just get let's say top, top two or three lessons that you learned being the CEO of Chipotle and such a fast, fast growing, just exponentially growing company. Um, and I, man, I remember the, the first time I remember hearing about it and then all of a sudden it was like a week later, they were on every street corner and, uh, and then just completely exploding all over the place. So I'd, I'd love to hear what your top two or three lessons were running that company. 
Yeah, I guess the top lesson for life generally is, you know, do not set about trying to see what you can get out of people or a job, but instead set about determining what you can give to people or your job. So start by thinking, what can I give to make myself indispensable to this organization, to make myself important to this organization, to help the organization shine and thrive, or to help the people at the organization shine and thrive. Or if it's someone you're meeting, don't think, what can I get out of this person? Think, what can I give to this person? And start by being a source of giving, okay? And that's a way, way, way more powerful way to run a company. It's a way more powerful way to parent a child. It's a way more par powerful way to be a friend or to meet or to, help, uh, to network, you know? If you want to network and the first thing you're doing is trying to be of service to the person you meet, okay? Don't think that you can't be of service because the person you're meeting is, quote unquote, a big shot. That's, that's, it's not so. You know, you can be of service. You can maybe do something to help them or, or bring some, some interest to them. So anyway, that's one huge lesson. Don't go after it for trying to make money or make something for yourself. Try to give yeah. something first. And then the rest of it follows. Money, relationships, all that stuff will follow. You just have to trust that it will. And I promise it will. Another big lesson is, the only source of a leader's power is that others choose to follow, okay? That's how a leader gets his power. Now, a manager gets their power by being a manager and saying, hey, look, you work for me, so clean the damn dishes, okay? Damn it. Yeah. I mean, maybe you don't say it in those words, but a manager orders people around. A leader harnesses the power and brilliance of the people with whom they interact, gets to know them, finds out what drives them, and, and delineates and articulates and illustrates a vision for that person that, that will help that person take off and have a better trajectory while also fulfilling the mission of the organization. So there's this overlap, right? You got to find a, a vision that if it's you, Travis, working for me, I got to find a vision that, that, that makes you, that wakes you up, that, that you're enthusiastic about, that you see will help you grow as a person to be the best person you can be. And that vision also has to be a vision that when you accomplish it for yourself will help the organization. So it's finding that vision that we, that we both have in common that will help you and help me. And we can both get excited about and then the name of the game is to empower you towards that vision. In the book, I talk all about exactly how to empower people. And I'm very, very specific about that. Another lesson, as a leader, work to diminish your power, not to increase it. This is something that no one talks about, okay? Leaders always want to get more powerful and knowledge is power and information. I want a higher job. I want a bigger title. No, no, no. Work to diminish your power. And what I mean by that is work to make the people around you so much better than they are now so much more effective. If it's a law firm, make them great lawyers so they don't need you anymore. And so the clients want them instead of you. Diminish your power so that you can grow into new areas, so that you can become a, a support system who has the time and bandwidth to be useful to other people. So don't work to increase your power in life. Work to diminish it by making other people more powerful and by making other people, you know, the most powerful and positive and, and sort of fruitful version of themselves. That's another huge lesson. And another one I'll repeat from earlier is stop listening to people's words so carefully. Words are deceptive. Words are designed to be deceptive half the time. You know, to tell someone you're doing well when you aren't. To tell someone you're excited about something when you're not. Have you ever seen someone when they go, yeah, I'm really excited, you know, to be here today. Um, it's just really <laughs> exciting and this is going to be really great. It's like bullshit. No, you're not excited. Don't say it. If you're tired, say, look, I'm tired. We got to have this meeting. I'm tired. I think it'll end up being a good meeting, but I'm just tired. So if I seem like I'm tired, it's because I'm tired. I mean, it'd be better to start there because then guess what? At least people are going, well, the guy's honest. Maybe kind of a bad way to start a meeting, but at least he was honest. So stop listening to people's words and instead listen 
and see and feel what they're actually communicating to you. And usually what they're communicating to you does not always line up perfectly with their words. Sometimes it does. And when it does, that's when someone's communicating beautifully, when the words line up with what they're actually experiencing. And that's called great communication. And you got to learn to be a great communicator. And I talk about that in the book too, of course. But yeah, so I guess those are some big lessons. I mean, this has been such a fun conversation, Monty. Maybe we can do a part two sometime and dive a little bit back into uh, more of the Chipotle story. I got to move on into the last segment here. But before we do, I got to ask you this question because this is the question on Build Your Network that we've asked our hundreds of guests that have come on the show before you. And I'm so I'm curious to hear what, what your thoughts are on it. Who you know or what you know, Monty, which of those two do you think is the most important asset in life and why? Well, okay. To me, they're very intertwined, but I'm going to answer your question instead of skirting it by saying who you know because relationships are what makes life worth it. Okay, that's what makes life worth it. What you know, if you're just alone on a hill somewhere, is very interesting and it's wonderful. It's great to be in touch with the truth. But who you know. But to me, you know, the way you get to know who you know deeply, you know, is to become wise, you know, which means to absorb as much of the truth as you can from whatever source. People is the biggest source. Books, you know, personal experiences, bumping into walls yourself, your own failings, your own mistakes, your own trials and tribulations, your own struggle. Learn from that struggle, but really use that knowledge, use that wisdom to establish deep connections with people. And in those connections, you'll find unity and connectedness, which, which gives rise to, you know, ultimately when you really get to know people, it gives rise to empathy and concern and care, which is, those are all the cousins and brothers and sisters to love. Okay. So then you have a, a world where you've got people in your life that you love and who love you. And then all of a sudden life is worth it. There's nothing else in life that matters other than having loving relationships and being cared for and seen, valued, loved, and understood by other people. And that's how you do it. So uh, they're both very, uh, very tied together. Love is free. Guac is extra. Please, please, please go pick up a copy of Monty's book right now. I promise you will not regret that. You guys know every time we have a book recommendation on the show, I want you to pick it up right now before you forget because lots of life gets in the way and you don't want you know, a busy schedule to prevent you from downloading knowledge and wisdom from amazing people like Monty. So go pick up a copy of his book right now. Let's move on into the last segment, Monty. Something I like to call the random round, just some quick random questions, quick (laughs) random answer. You ready? Okay. What profession other than your own, do you think that it would just be fun to attempt? Well, if I were younger, like a rock and roll singer, like a, like a, a musical star. Connecting to people on stage through your music and just feeling all that energy, that'd be cool. I would be a blast. Yeah, it'd be be really fun. Addicting, that's for sure. Yeah. If you could sit on a park bench with someone, past or present, and chat for an hour, who would it be? The Dalai Lama. How do you like to consume content? Books, audiobooks, blogs, podcasts, videos? I like a lot of audiobooks because I can listen to it when I'm doing a bunch of other things. I tend to be a multitasker, so I really like audiobooks. What is an audiobook that you would recommend to an audience full of entrepreneurs? The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. It is not a business book, but it's a book about being present and finding out who you are and achieving a level of authenticity, which will help you in your life. So I think it's a very powerful book. Give us a glimpse of your morning routine. Okay. I get up and right away I start to tackle what's in my inbox and then, and, uh, and then I sort of sort out what's going on in the day and, and kind of space out when my appointments are going to be. And uh, I always try to tuck in a place for either a run or a swim because I find it's very, very helpful to clear your mind through exercise. Uh, And I try to spend some time every day writing and just writing, writing about what's on my mind or writing my next book or uh, writing poetry or something where I can express myself in words because I really like to write. So those are the biggest things. Then of course, you know, making sure I spend time with, uh, you know, my wife, my kids, 
and, and friends and get enough time with them. Oh, and I love to cook. So I love to cook big elaborate dinners and I just love cooking. What is your go-to pump up song? Sick as a Dog by Aerosmith. What is something that you are not very good at? Patience. Yeah, just trusting that everything's going to be okay. <laughs> and as we get everything wrapped up here, Monty, what is one place online where our listeners can go to connect with you the most? Yeah, so loveisfree.com is our website. And there you can find out about the book. You can find out about the docuseries, which is called Connected, which is, started, which is showing now on PBS stations in different places in the country. Some places not yet, some places it's already started. But uh, throughout the country, you can find out when on loveisfree.com. So if you want to be better with people, which if you're listening to the Bilge Network podcast, there's probably a pretty high chance that that is you, then you're going to want to head over to loveisfree.com, pick up a copy of Monty's book and really just follow him wherever you can, glean some knowledge, glean some wisdom uh, from somebody who's walked the path before you. Monty, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today, brother. I had a fantastic time chatting with you. Hey, thank you, Travis. It was really fun. Appreciate it. Look forward to seeing you again soon. That's it for this episode. If you want to connect with Travis and other like-minded people who also listen to the show, then you're going to want to head over to travischapel.com slash group to join his free Facebook group, Podcast to Profit. Travis will see you there. And remember to leave every relationship better than you found it. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Here in America, work is in trouble. We've offshored our manufacturing, sent away good jobs, and lost so much ability to make things. American Giant is a company that's pushing back against this tide. They make high-quality clothing, sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more, right here in the USA. Visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com, promo code STAPLE20.